Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2.5% of the most popular podcasts in the world, and that's because of the incredible people that join me each Monday and Friday. I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game, and they come on the show to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. These are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with you the essence of peak performance. And my guest today is prize-winning novelist, screenwriter, director, producer, and copywriter Robert Rivenbark. I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice, Robert. And he joins us today to, to share his epic journey, truly it's epic, from London to Hollywood. And the act of writing is an act of communication. When we write, we are creating something that simply didn't exist before. Hold on. It's going to be one of those days. Um, so Robert earned a master's degree in creative writing from Antioch University after winning a full academic scholarship to study for two years in Oxford in London. I've always wanted to go visit Oxford. And based on his winning short story collection, his experience gave him there gave him global perspective as a storyteller. And speaking of storytellers, both of us are connected with, with um, Ken Achety, storymerchant.com. He's been my guest. We'll talk a bit about him. And then Robert returned to the U.S. for a career in journalism and advertising and then worked as a senior copywriter and video producer for some of America's most prestigious advertising agencies and 14 Fortune 500 companies. Robert, welcome to your partner in Success Radio. Thank you for sending me your book. And as you can tell, you're going to be doing all the talking today. My voice is shocked. <laughs> so oh, well. I hope you're ready for that. This, um, no pressure, right? But you do all the talking. <laughs> well, bless you, and thank you so much for having me, Denise. It's such an honor, and I'm delighted to be here today. Well, thank and, you. Uh, where would you like me to start? Because I once I get going, I, I can't stop. <laughs> you just tell me. <laughs> well, you know what I really want to dive into is your incredible journey. I mean, as I mentioned, you started your journey, you know, creative writing in Oxford and London. Seriously, Oxford is one of those towns that if I need to go just kind of calm my soul, I go look at pictures of Oxford. Go figure. But, I mean, you've had this wonderful path, I guess. And I guess I really just want to know how you went from there to publishing your first novel, which is very different from anything else I've ever read, and which is now in development as a TV series with the aforementioned Ken Achety. That's where I want to start. (laughs) Okay, well, that sounds like a good spot. (laughs) All right, well, uh, I... I grew up in in Georgia, and I attended the University of Georgia. I got my bachelor's in English from there. And I found out about a competition through Antioch University, which is in 
uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. And you could submit either a collection of poems, a novel, a play, or a collection of short stories to compete to win a full scholarship to get a master's in creative writing through their Antioch Center for British Studies, which in the summers is held at Plater, P-L-A-T-E-R, College in Oxford, and then during the academic year, starting in September, moves down to uh, Islington, which is uh, a borough of London. So I submitted uh, a group of five short stories. I had no clue that I was even going to be in the, the running, and lo and behold, I won the, the full scholarship, uh, which paid for me to uh, be in Oxford. I lived in Oxford for a year. I moved down to London uh, after the first academic year, and it was the experience of a lifetime because uh, not only were my professors incredible teachers, but... I was there with all of the spoils of the entire British Empire all around me, uh, 2,000 years of history everywhere you turned. And in fact, my faculty advisor uh, helped me to earn a little bit of money because I, I didn't have a work permit and couldn't work legally. So he hired me as a research assistant, and I would go down to um, the um, British Museum Library and at that point, they had a vast rotunda, which was about, I believe, five or six stories high. And at that point, uh, you would give the clerk a little slip of paper, and he would go way up in the stacks and bring down the book that you asked for. And I was, at that point, doing some research uh, on Jonathan Edwards, who was an 18th century American uh, theologian. And so I kind of saw the British Museum as my second home. You know, when you walk in the front door and you look up at the first flight of stairs, there stand the gates of Nineveh, which were about, uh, I would say, 20 meters high, about 10 meters wide, just enough for a chariot. And you may recall that Nineveh is where Jonah came from. So before and after he was swallowed by the whale and disgorged, uh, he lived in Nineveh. And, and then each floor of the museum had the spoils of the British Empire. So I used to spend days upon days going through the Indian pavilion. Uh, they had uh, reassembled the princess's chariot. She was an Assyrian princess. She stood about 4'9", probably weighed about 85 pounds, and there was her chariot with the gold filigree all, all around it. Uh, and so that really gave me a global perspective. I also haunted all the bookstores, and because I had an international student ID, I could go to any theater in the West End or the National Theater, including the Royal Shakespeare Company, and 30 minutes before curtain, if they had not sold out the performance, I could get in to see any show in London uh, for two English pounds because of this international student idea. 
So I went to the theater about five nights a week, and all of the I great, bet. yeah, all the all the great British movie stars that we know and love, they were all uh, earning their chops by performing in the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theater, and uh, the West End theaters. Now that that was an incredible experience, and then. You know, you, you, you got historical perspective. Uh, for example, one of my professors, Joe Gallagher, who was a Catholic priest, I had uh, unfortunately broken up uh, in a relationship with, with a young lady, and I was just, you know, in duress. He says, well, let's, let's take a trip out to Stonehenge uh, because it's, it's very close. This is during the summer we were in Oxford. That's where we always held our classes. So I rode on a bus with him. He was such a good friend. He could see I was, you know, I was heartbroken. Here I was in a new country. I had just lost my, my wife. Uh, and he took me out to Stonehenge. And at that particular point, it was uh, the the uh, monoliths were not behind a fence. Now I think they're fenced off because people were painting graffiti on them. And so I got to crawl up on the monoliths, and he pointed up at Salisbury Plain and said, okay, you see that nice rolling hill there? I said, yeah, what about it? He said, well, that's Salisbury Plain, and I happened to read uh, Latin uh, as, a, as a priest who helped to translate the Vatican II documents into English. And there is a, a famous Roman book written by a citizen in the 4th century A.D., uh, when the Western Empire, as you may recall from history, uh, that uh, the, the Western Roman Empire fell in 476 A.D. So they pulled all the legions out of Britain to make a last stand against the Germanic tribes that were uh, trying to uh, invade and conquer Rome. And so that left the Angles and the Saxons to invade all the Roman towns. And so this gentleman, this Roman citizen, very cultured uh, gentleman, was writing about seeing the Angles and the Saxons by the thousands pouring over Salisbury Plain, and they came into battle stark naked with their bodies painted blue. And this book started in the middle of a, it stopped, excuse me, it stopped in the middle of a sentence. And that was the last written word in England for 400 years. There was not another uh, written word until, uh, you know, Catholic monks were building monasteries and they restored uh, literacy. So it, were, it was things like that that began to give me the sense that, oh, all right, so the United States is not the center of the universe. There's an entire world out there, and there are cultures that are so much older. Uh, and then I also met people from all over the former British Empire. I, I had a girlfriend for a while that was from Belfast in Northern Ireland, Ireland, so I learned all about the Troubles, which I'm sure you've heard about between Protestants oh, yeah. and Catholics. Uh, I met, uh, I had another, another girlfriend who was from Germany, and I uh, spoke German because that was my minor at the University of Georgia, and I'd been over there for summer. And then I met people from uh, India, Pakistan, uh, you know, all sorts of African nations. I remember one gentleman from Nigeria told me wonderful stories about his country. 
uh, and he was he was writing about he he had written a beautiful play about uh, his his culture, and he was telling me about how you could go out in the jungle certain places and you would just disappear into the world of the gods. Uh, or you could put your head under water in a river and see into the world of the gods. And, you know, stories like that. And so I was exposed to so many different cultures. And it just really helped me to become a global citizen in my heart so that I think of myself, of course, I'm a citizen of the United States. I love my country. But I consider myself far more, because of that, as a citizen of the world who is concerned with what's happening for all of us on this very troubled planet. So uh, I came back from Britain after two years. I had a very thick British accent. Uh, I settled in. <laughs> and you sound a little bit southern to me right now, although I will, I swear, anybody who asks me, I don't have a southern accent. I draw, that's different. And that's all I have to say about that. Well, you ha- you have a very mellifluous and elegant accent. That is music to my ears because I grew up in the South. <laughs> I know, and thank you. <laughs> you are quite welcome. Anyway, so I landed in, in uh, the Bay Area, uh, uh, California, Northern California, uh, where I married... Uh, uh, I, uh, my college sweetheart, uh, Susan, who was a doctoral student at Stanford University, she was getting her PhD in religious studies, and so I lived there in student-married housing on the uh, on the uh, Stanford campus for three years while she got her doctorate. I, I nursed her through that. That was a tough tough haul for her to get through. And I worked in Silicon Valley as a technical writer. So that's where I learned all about the uh, world of computers and IT and uh, software and computer viruses and worms and all of those kinds of things. That kind of gave me a perspective on that. And then when she graduated, we moved back and we lived in Miami, Florida for several years. And uh, then unfortunately that and then she moved. She got a job up in Virginia to, uh, at Radford University. And uh, unfortunately, after a while, that, that marriage didn't work out. And so I, I landed it back in Atlanta. I've actually moved back to Atlanta, which is my second hometown. I grew up in a little town called Waycross, but I, Atlanta is really my hometown. I moved back there and worked at many Waycross is in Georgia, right? Oh, yes, yes, just okay. north of Jacksonville. So when I was growing up, we called it Jacks, and Jacks was the big city. <laughs> so that's where you went to get in trouble. But anyway, so I moved back to Atlanta after my marriage broke up. I worked in a number of ad agencies, and I was very fortunate. I got very interested in writing uh, screenplays, and I got an offer from an ad agency out in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County, just, just south of L.A. And they were so anxious to get me on board that they paid for the move and uh, essentially spotted me enough money so that 
I could move my whole family out, my wife and our three dogs, into a lovely house in Aliso Viejo, which is a suburb. And so I arrived there, unfortunately, just in time for the Great Recession. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, I, like many other folks in advertising, had a lot of experience moving from one run ad agency to another and one Fortune 500 biotech company to another. So it was uh, my eight and a half years living in L.A. during very perilous financial times, but also learning a heck of a lot about biotechnology because a lot of my clients were folks who were inventing the uh, medical technology of the future. That gave me the perspective on that side of life. Uh, I also had, uh, uh, while I was there, uh, my, my marriage wasn't too well, and I was shooting, doing some still photography and shooting videos for a, uh, a lady from Taiwan who is a classical electric violinist and vocalist. And I just fell head over heels for her. And I thought, you know, that things were going to work out for us. And unfortunately, they didn't. So I came away brokenhearted. And then at the end of eight and a half years, uh, the Great Recession, this was in uh, like May of 2015, I finally just decided I've got to leave L.A. because the job market here is just so awful. And my sister is a, a real estate agent in Atlanta, and she had been telling me for the longest time, come on back. Uh, in Atlanta, they shoot $19.5 billion a year in movies and TV shows. We've got 19 Fortune 500 companies. Uh, the economy is great. Move your butt back here. So I did. You know, I Robert, I remember in 2008 when it hit us real hard. You know, I'm in the yeah. middle of oilfield company, you know, country, and yeah. honestly, everybody here who was anything to do with oilfield was heading for Atlanta. And I remember seeing, you know, bumper stickers that said, "Last person out of Louisiana, turn off the lights." They weren't kidding. <laughs> it was bad. But everybody oh, was going was... to Atlanta. I drove to Atlanta a couple times with some friends of mine. Mm-hmm. Peachtree is just, I never even want to see that name again, Peachtree, Peachtree. You can't, thank God Everywhere. I wasn't driving because we'd still be there. <laughs> I <almost laughs> ran out of gas and had to be towed. But, oh, my goodness, it's a beautiful city. But Peachtree, what the heck? But, yeah, I see why you went back there. I I have no idea how that originated. It seems completely irrational. It would be much smarter to lay the streets out like New York City, where you have avenues, you know, going north and south and streets going east and west. That would make a lot more sense. And you just, and honestly, when I move it's, back. How do you properly say Atlanta? I know we're not supposed to pronounce the T. Is Atlanta, right? I just... It's it's Atlanta, uh, Atlanta. Yeah, most people don't. Yeah, yeah you don't pronounce, pronounce that the final you get yelled thing. at. Yeah, yeah. Like you're and, not and, local, and are you, nope. Well, and when I moved back, I was very quickly told, "Do not 
call the city Hot Atlanta anymore. That's not cool. So <laughs> I, and I went through culture shock because when oh, I moved yeah. back yeah. after eight and a half years, it was not the same city, and I had to learn it all over again as if I had never lived there in my life, and it was my sixth move back there. <laughs> the population had increased. So huge. I was there not too long ago. My my best friend's sister passed away, and we had to make a trip oh, to Atlanta sorry. to clean everything out and bring you know mm. get rid of some of it there, donate it, do whatever you do, and then bring some of it here. And mm. I remember I I'm, I'm not a good passenger. I'm just not. I get carsick <laughs> or I get bored. I finally just said. You don't mind if I take a nap, do you? She said, go right ahead. <laughs> and, you know, I just, we like to listen to a lot of different audio. T- right, I think during this trip we were listening to uh, Ernest Holmes, you know, oh, which wow. is fascinating to me. And we kind of think about the same things. And I listened to that and eventually dozed off. But I think I listened to it enough of it to grasp what it was all about and came back. But what a, what a, and I just, tracked my own self right off the the episode here. I don't even know what we're supposed to be talking about. But what I well, what uh, I the point I'm I wanted to make <laughs> Yeah, I'm leading up to how I happen to write my novel, but these are all some Yeah, well, and that's where I wanted to go of, because yeah. you do have a number of diverse writing awards and I wanted to get there but mm-hmm. I kept thinking while you've been talking is like, you know, everybody we've always heard all of our lives, everybody. We all have a book in us or ten you almost cannot get a you personally almost we're just honor bound to write a book i mean i don't see how you could avoid it well a lot of folks are doing it uh it's not something i would recommend because it's it's a very tough slog however if you've got the fire in the belly go for it (laughs) but um Anyway, I'll, I'll come to the point. So moving back to Atlanta put me uh, in, into a job, an advertising job for a Fortune 500 commercial real estate company that is building cities of the future in 75 countries. Now, those cities they're building are going to be for the top 10% only. Uh, presumably, everybody else will live in a ghetto. And that didn't set too well with me. And so I kind of, I had been writing some screenplays with a partner, and she went through a family tragedy. And so I thought, well, okay, if I'm not going to write another screenplay, what the heck am I going to do? And I decided to try my hand at a novel, and it seemed to me that uh, speculative fiction, which is Margaret Atwood's term for what I wrote, that's what she insists on calling the handmaid's tale, uh, which is it's a branch of science fiction. I decided to write that because I had learned so much about uh, cities of the future. One of the one of the things I I did was at this Fortune 500 commercial real estate company was write a series of articles where I interviewed Dr. Andrea Shagut, who is the chair of the Real Estate Innovation Lab at MIT, and she has eight doctoral students. Uh, writing dissertations under her guidance, and they are, in fact, inventing the uh, technologies for cities of the future. And we're talking about things like robotic 
uh, skyscrapers on treads that can be moved aside when you want to change your cityscape. So I got very interested in, well, I'm not, and also one of the things we did was we went out to uh, Las Vegas for the Adobe Max show. Adobe is the company that makes all of the graphic software that's used in advertising and publishing. And they have an enormous, uh, it, it's like, I don't know, it's like a Broadway uh, musical where they present all their latest technology. And one of the things that they presented was their latest virtual reality tech. And they just had a, a huge theater-sized screen, IMAX screen. They showed us what it would look like. But they said in 15 to 20 years, you're not going to need a helmet virtual reality will be total immersion. So I, that got me very interested. Okay, what are the implications of the city of the future and this development of uh, virtual reality? And what if it fell into the wrong hands? Because I read quite a bit about how uh, the Beijing regime in China now has facial recognition software driven by AI that allows surveillance cameras in all Chinese cities to zero in on people's faces. And if their expression is indicative of traitorous thoughts, the secret police come and take them away. Uh, and, and then I read a, a book called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. That's H-O-M-O-D-E-U-S, A Brief History of Tomorrow by Yuval Noah Noah Harari, who is a futurist thinker from Israel, and he asserts that the great quest of the top 1% in the 21st century will be the quest for personal immortality in this world, and he claims in his book, I can't substantiate this, but he claims that the, uh, the, the two founders of Google are already investing many millions into, into developing that medical tech so they can live forever. So it was the combination of all the things I've just described that gave me the idea for this novel. And once I got into it, it took me a while to get it all outlined and out of the emotional stage and into the rational stage where I could actually turn it into a story. But once I got on a roll with it, it just flowed out of me like, like honey. And I was wise enough... Uh, when I finished the first draft, to contact a lady named Elizabeth Lyon, who's one of the best book editors in the United States. And I had worked with her before on a, a novel way back in the day that never got published. And so I brought her in to, to edit the first draft. She said, you, you've got a winner here, but we're going to have to fix these 150 problems. <laughs> so I slogged through that. And when it was finally in good shape, she said, all right, enter it in every literary contest out there. And don't be shy. Enter it in everything. So I entered it in many. And the one that I struck Peter with was the um, San Antonio, I'm sorry, the San Antonio Writers Guild 27th Annual Writing contest of uh, writers in all genres from all over the United States 
uh, enter their manuscripts, and they give away a cash prize. And in 2019, I won first place in the science fiction category. So Elizabeth Lyon, my, my book editor, was ecstatic and said, all right, start doing mass mailings to agents and uh, get your hands on Jeff Herman's Guide to Literary Agents and Publishers and just take 20 at a time. Don't be shy. Write a nice pitch letter. I'll help you edit it. And just keep on keeping on doing mass mailings until somebody says yes. So the first mass mailing I sent, uh, Ken Atchity wrote me back the same day. He said, hi, this is Ken Atchity. I'm, I'm a literary manager and producer here in uh, L.A., and I like your pitch letter. Could you please send me your entire manuscript as a PDF? I don't want sample chapters. I want the whole book, and I'll get back to you. And so I, I did you know, not thinking anything would come of it. And three weeks later, Ken Ashley called me and said, hi, you may recall I asked for your manuscript several weeks back. I read it. I think you've got a winner here, and I would like to sign you to an exclusive contract to represent you both to find a publisher and also to uh, adapt uh, your story as either a feature film and or a series on one of the streaming services and or one of the cable networks. And I said, of course, yes, sir, but <laughs> I would be delighted to do so. So I did. So at that point, the hard work really started because Ken uh, and his script doctors and also some fellow producers uh, worked over my manuscript and I went through seven major rewrites over the next three years. And the only thing that kept me going was faith in the good Lord and, and just an attitude of failure is not an option. And, hey, if you quit now, then all of this sweat and blood will be for nothing. So I, I got through the seven rewrites. And uh, during the process, Ken said, look, uh, I, I think we, this is going to work as a series as opposed to a feature, so I would like you to write a 60-page uh, pilot script. And I'd written, you know, a lot of screenplays before, so I did that. I went through seven major rewrites with that, too. <laughs> you know, I have, then, I have to interrupt <laughs> you. I remember in previous conversations with Ken Kenagedy, and he has explained to me that some of these projects that he creates or gets involved with or whatever is going to happen can take years. And I think many of us who pick up the book or we we watch the television show, not me, I don't watch TV, or we watch the movie, but we have no concept of what went on behind <laughs> the scenes to get that in front of us so we can go, oh, that was good. Oh, I'm going to Rotten Tomato. I hated it. It's not that easy, y'all. So before you pick on somebody for their body of work, just sit and think about what we're talking about here. It's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Yes, ma'am, it is. And I, I'm just fortunate in that uh, Ken is the, the kind of person who said, look, it just doesn't matter whatever emotional state my feedback is going to put you in, 
Just remember, it's only temporary. And just please shut up and do what I tell you, and this this thing is going to work out fine. And so no so wine I, did I take it. You weren't allowed no to wine or. Okay. I, I was not allowed that to wine. Like that's that's Ken. He's well, you know, he was a a college professor who taught the classics for twenty years at Occidental College in L.A. And he has a Ph.D. Uh, in, in classical studies from Yale and, and reads uh, uh, Latin and Greek. So he's, he was treating me like one of the doctoral students, and that's what I needed. I mean, you can't spare anybody's feelings. And it's, you know, it's like the Buddhists say, whatever emotional state you're suffering, it's temporary. It will pass. And sure enough, it did. So I, uh, another thing I did was kids said, look, um, these days in Hollywood, people don't really want to see a pitch, but we had done a pitch book, which is about like a 36-page full-color document. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's got sample pictures. It's got uh, you know a pitch. It's got uh, synopsis. And I had done that working with an art director in Irvine, California. But that kind of it became passe. And so kids said, now what really resonates in Hollywood is a two-minute ripomatic, which is another phrase for a two-minute promotional video. And I happen to have the ripomatic promotional video that the director of the Hunger Games used to get the directing gig for the first Hunger Games film. So I just used that as my exploration. It was about, like, almost five minutes. But Ken says, keep it to two. So I worked about uh Robert, is that kind months. of like what people like me would, would recognize as a movie trailer? Yes, ma'am. It is. Okay. It is a two minute it is a two minute movie trailer. Okay, and gotcha. what I did yeah, what I did is since we could not put this out on the internet or I would be sued, I painstakingly went through twenty seven uh Blu ray discs of of films, science fiction films that were similar to mine, and I, I found footage that I could use. In some cases, it was only three seconds. And then uh, I was working with uh, Bruce Lane, a very gifted filmmaker friend here in town. And what we couldn't find in those 27 Blu-rays of previous films, we got through uh, stock video footage. And we spent four and a half months on it. Uh, Ken was very involved in giving us feedback on the script and also looking at rough cuts. And finally, we got it down to two minutes, and it's it's gorgeous. And so Ken will use that to market it to all the studios that he's going to pitch the project to. So in any case, so I got, to, I got, I got the novel whipped into shape. I got uh, the 60-minute pilot script written to Ken's satisfaction, and I got the two-minute diplomatic promotional video. And then we, we tried a, uh, Ken tried a lot of New York publishers that he's worked with for over four years. And he explained that, unfortunately, over the last 10 years, there's been uh, a rather dispiriting development in New York publishing. All of the big 
New York publishing houses are now owned by one of five conglomerates, one of which is Rupert Murdoch's. So all these editors he's worked with for decades now are, are basically given the ultimatum. You can take a chance on two books a year, and if they're not bestsellers instantly, you're fired. So that means that if your name isn't Stephen King or Margaret Atwood, <laughs> it's it's just really tough to get in the door because it's not like in the days of Maxwell Perkins, the great editor for Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and William Faulkner and uh, many other great, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, many other great American writers. So Ken decided 10 years ago, okay, if the folks in New York are not going to play ball like they have been uh, for the last 30 years, I'm going to start my own publishing company. And it's going to be called Story Merchant Books because Ken's heritage goes all the way back to the Phoenicians, the ancient Phoenicians, who were great traders. And that's why he has on his logo uh, a little Phoenician uh, sailing ship. And he has, over the last 10 years, published more than 300 books. Under now, your book merchant. is published by Story Merchant, yes? Yes, it is. Yes, it okay. is. And so uh, that just, you know, Ken said, look, Bob, I'll be happy to keep trying, but I have knocked on every door in New York I can. And to editor friends, some of whom I've known for 40 years, and they're just terrified that they, they, they've got a gun to their head and they can't take the risk And on a first-time novelist. So that's the route we decided to take, and I'm so glad uh, that I did because it was just wonderful working with the whole team, uh, everybody from the uh, copy editor who helped me eliminate probably 95% of the typos. I think there are one or two still, even though I proved it 20 times. Uh, but in the cover design, uh, a brilliant young lady from North Carolina who lives in London designed the cover. I gave her some creative directions. She sent out a very detailed uh, questionnaire, what do you want on your cover? And I, I was just so thrilled when I saw the cover. And uh, the uh, arrangement that Ken has with Amazon.com, which I don't know, you probably know this, but Amazon now publishes five times more books than all five of the major New York City publishing conglomerates together. I did know five that. Times. And I'm not surprised. I did. Oh, yeah. Ken had mentioned yeah. it, but I think I already knew it before that. So what, what's happening is, is many of the authors that Ken has worked with over the decades are now having their novels reprinted through story merchant books because the arrangement he has with uh, Amazon is Amazon takes their percentage from the sale of each uh, uh, sale of, of either the print book or the Kindle. Ken then takes his uh, commission, but the rest of the money goes to the author. 
Uh, whereas if, if you're published by a New York publishing company, you as the author get 5% of the retail price. Well, going through Amazon uh, and, and marketing through Amazon, you as the author end up keeping a lot more of that purchase price, which is why, as I mentioned, a lot of his clients from, from back in the day are reprinting their works through story merchant books. Right. And Kindle. And by the way, you had mentioned Kindle. I download. You sent me your book, and I really appreciate that, and I really love the note that you wrote. But I also downloaded it from Kindle because right now it's available. If you have Kindle Unlimited, you can grab it for free and read it. Absolutely. Which I'm doing. We, we, okay. Well, well, look. Art should be for everybody. I know. It shouldn't be just. It, ju- it shouldn't be for just for people who can afford to pay $750 for a ticket to a Broadway musical. Art should be for everybody. And so that's delightful that Amazon has done this. I mean, Steve Bezos, who started as a bookseller in his garage, has just really shifted the paradigm and made publishing and reading uh, a much more democratic process for people all over the world. And uh, another another wonderful thing that, that Ken does uh, for authors that publish through Story Merchant Books is he has uh, an Amazon ad guru, uh, Sean, who is able to massage the algorithms and we're in the sec- I'm in the second month of him marketing my novel, The Cloud, but during the first month, he puts out about a thousand keywords to see how people are responding. And then the second month, the keywords that are really getting a lot of click-throughs, those are the ones that he markets with. And that's called uh, analytics, where you start out with a shotgun approach with thousands of keywords, but the ones that are working for you, those are the ones you end up using. It's the same thing I used at the uh, Ad Knowledge Agency uh, on Wilshire Boulevard in L.A. when I worked for that agency. Uh, the analytics help you target your uh, uh, potential readers much more precisely. So I'm expecting the second month of the campaign that we're going to really uh, seriously do some damage in terms of, of selling the book. And then uh-huh. another thing, oh. you know, yeah. And then another thing uh, Ken did that has been so helpful is connect me with uh, Devin Blaine of the Blaine mm-hmm. Group. Who That's is another mutual of, friend. Yeah. Uh, she is truly one of the greatest uh, publicists uh, in Hollywood. And she is the lady that got in touch with you and and some other folks out there in the media. And it's just been, been tremendous working with her. And then I also have a buddy here in Atlanta, Andy Suggs, who owns a branding agency called Reckon Branding. And he is handling all the social media uh, campaigns. So he designed a gorgeous website, which is www.thecloudnovel.com. And he's also overseeing uh, the uh, Facebook novel page, the uh, Instagram account, the Twitter account, 
And he's also very carefully placing Facebook ads and using the same analytic approach, like you run the ad for two weeks. If you don't like what's happening, you try a different form of it. So we've got about, I'd say, uh, 18 to 20 different ads that we're testing. And the ones that get responses are the ones we repeat. The ones that don't get responses, we drop. So we're going into the second month on that, and we're getting some fantastic results with that as well. So, And see, what I'm hearing from you, Robert, is that it's one thing to have that book in us, which we all do, and I'm almost almost close to having my first book written. And now I'm starting to oh. panic, like, what do I do now? Which I kind of know what to do, but listening to you is almost like a primer in where to find the help. How do you do this? A lot of people say, oh, you know, I want to be on the Times, you know, New York list. That's going to cost you $350,000 or better just to even start to get you there. Amazon is a much better place to go. But the thing is, I'm listening to you, and you've really laid out what if you're dead serious about putting out a book, if you're really serious about getting into some kind of production as a TV series or a movie, you need to find, and this is what I'm hearing from you, you need to find the, the people that are actually going to you know, work with you, work for you, get things done. You really can't do these things on your own. And a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to you know, put it up on Kindle. I can have my, I've had people say this, I'm going to have my virtual assistant put it into the format and put it up there. I'm going to make millions. Probably not. People have done that in the dim, distant past when it was all brand new and it worked, but it was just one of those freak things. Now you need to do what Robert has done and find the people who are going to get you down the path you want to go on. Well, that's a a very eloquent summary of the uh, bitter reality out there. Uh, You know, in Europe, uh, the government gives artists money they're very supportive and unfortunately in the united states you have to be an entrepreneur and i have a dear friend uh malwina who is a prolific novelist in poland she's written four novels a trilogy and a standalone she has six screenplays that have won or placed in international film festivals and two stage plays that toured poland for two to three years And all of that is financed by the government. Now, she's making her own money now, but the government over there helped her get into that space. Over here, you've just got to be an entrepreneur. And that that was the commitment I made. And, And the good news there is when you're willing to put yourself out there in that way and you've got a great property, and in this case, my novel, everybody involved in this could see right away that it's a winner. Uh, it, it's a powerful, uh, dramatic story that has a lot to say about a potential future we may be entering. And I've written it as a cautionary tale like The Handmaid's Tale in 1984 and Brave New World. Uh, I'm hoping the future won't turn out this way, but it could if we don't correct uh, some of the things that we're doing now that are leading to that. And many of the technologies uh, that I write about in this book 
are either already in use or will still be, soon be in use. Absolutely. I read 1984 when I was a kid, and it scared the bejeebers out of me. I read it a couple of times every year, and that's one of the reasons, just one, that I'm such a privacy nut. I like my privacy. I'm also a highly committed introvert, so that's part of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, you just don't need to know where I am, what I'm doing, what I just ate. You just don't need to know that. And I was reading this morning about Bruce Willis. I guess he has a problem with it's not dementia, but it's something else. And he sold his, it's like a deep fake thing, if I remember correctly. You know, he can still appear on the big screen even after he was forced to retire because of ill health because he sold his image rights to Deep Cake, which is an artificial intelligence-powered content optimization platform. So we're still going to see Bruce Willis, but are we going to know if that's really Bruce Willis? That kind of bothers me. Well, it should bother you, and and that's one of the the key themes in in my novel. I know, and, that's, and when it, I read it, this, I went, "Ah, oh, I've seen this before." <laughs> so, not surprised. Yeah, and 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 it's also, uh, I think, in, in some sense, I mean, I won't claim completely, but I think in some sense, this novel captures the zeitgeist. It captures. Uh, things that people are worried about, anxious about, frightened about, and are wondering about. Like, what kind of a future are we going to have? Are we going to have a future? Is the world going to be uh, obliterated by global warming? Is, uh, are these um, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes that are on the rise going to take over everywhere? And are we going to be under 24-7 surveillance and enslaved by virtual reality? And that's what this novel questions. Uh, now, uh, 1984 is a very nihilistic novel. It ends very darkly with no hope for humanity at all. Uh, what I provide is some hard-won salvation for the three, uh, well, the two principal characters, Blaise Pascal VII, the virtual reality programmer who's the protagonist, and Christina uh, Soon, uh, who is a Chinese American uh, hacker who recruits him to try to bring down this corrupt uh, regime called the Cloud that rules all of Asia and North America and Australia and New Zealand. And uh, I won't, I'm not going to give any spoilers. I'm just going to say it's a tough fight for them. But ultimately, I have faith in humanity. You know, my favorite writer of all time is Dostoevsky, and in the notes from the underground, he was writing that as a, 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 a protest against this world exhibition. It was like the world's first World's Fair in London, and all these Russian writers during his lifetime, Dostoevsky's lifetime, were predicting that we were going to live in a utopia uh, where everybody would be like a piano key and everybody would be singing from the same songbook, and everybody would be equal, and everybody would get equal pay. And he said, no, the human soul will not permit that. Somebody will always say no to it. So that is the article of faith I have that prompted me to give my readers some hope at the end. But it's hard one, and this is a page-turner. You're not going to be able to put this down uh, it, it has all of the uh, futuristic technological things. It also has a 
a sizzling romantic triangle between the tormented uh, protagonist, Blaise Pascal VII, the VR programmer, and uh, Mitsuko, who is the uh, daughter of his boss, and she uh, is, is trying to seduce him to want to just be with her and spend eternity together, enjoying every pleasure imaginable, whereas Christina, the uh, the hacker, is recruiting him to try to give him the courage to upload a computer worm which her hacker conspiracy has created, which would bring down the entire cloud global server network. And I'm not going to tell you how it turns out, but I can just tell you, you're going to be on the edge of your seat, folks. You're not going to, you're going to wonder, like, are they going to get through this alive or not? Uh, over and over again. So, you know, I learned well from uh, Ken uh, Atchity from working with him the last uh, three years and also reading his wonderful book, uh, The Writer's Time, that uh, the way you, you keep a reader is first you develop the characters well. The story can't be about all the gizmos and tech. It's got to be about well-rounded characters. And you put them in impossible situations and keep throwing those impossible situations at them again and again. So the odds of survival go down, 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 and you wonder if they're going to make it. But you're engaged with them because they're sympathetic, and you want them to win. You're rooting for them to win, but you have no clue. And so that's that's another reason that um, Ken is planning at the end of the day, uh, once we have enough good reads, five-star reviews, and we've got four so far, and uh, we need about 30 Amazon reviews, and then he will feel very comfortable about taking the project with my novel in hand to all of the Hollywood studios uh, to see which one is looking for a brand spanking new, hard-hitting sci-fi series, which I have every confidence he will uh, succeed with because he he's one of the best he's in the business. Yeah. You know, when I was reading the book, as I mentioned earlier, I read 1984 when I was a kid, and I'm not really mm. much for watching TV or movies. I have to... Mm. almost be in a nap mode. I would much rather read. Give me a stack of books. I'm happy. You want me to watch something? I'm probably going to go make a gumbo. I will get bored pretty quickly. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I, can, I don't mind listening to it. I just don't want to have to sit there and watch it. But when I was reading your book, I went right back to 1984 because it stuck with me in a big, big way. And then I started something you just said a minute ago that, you know, what's life, our life going to be like? I mean, and Bruce Willis, are we really real anymore? And that took me to the Truman Show with uh, Jim Carrey. And I have, mm -hmm. as you know, because we've had several conversations, I have a pretty irreverent approach to life. I'm, I'll just say what it is. My mom used to say I was an educated smartass. Not Alec, smart ass. <laughs> My mama loved me. <laughs> but, but I have said this to friends. It's like, you know what? I think I, sometimes I feel like, honestly, we're part Truman Show and part we're just in this giant ant farm. And we've just put so much crap into this thing that whoever's in charge of it, God, whoever, 
is going to say, I don't think we can salvage this. He's just going to dump it over the edge. I, you know, I, we just don't know what's real anymore. We just don't. And that's frightening to me. It is frightening. And, and that's the world we live in. And I think that, you know, our mission as human beings is to say no to that horrifying uh, uh, reality and uh, reclaim our hearts, minds, and spirits. And the only way we can do that is to say no to the temptation of letting ourselves just fade away into a virtual reality world, which is something that the ruling regime, the cloud in my novel, has uh, used to control people. Uh, They have virtual reality series that are total immersion, In fact, they're so realistic that you could actually be physically harmed uh, by these series, and they've used the technology to create a horrifying assassin called the Mantis. And if you have traitorous thoughts, because they're monitoring your brainwaves 24-7, and if they detect a traitorous brainwave pattern, the Mantis appears as a virtual reality apparition, this giant praying Mantis, and just slices and dices you. And your body, unfortunately, believes it's real, even though it's virtual reality. And Blaze is, unfortunately, one of the people that helped develop that. He didn't realize it. But also they want uh, him to use his skills to create a virtual reality-delivered drug that will cause the underclass, the slags, to commit mass suicide because the ruling regime thinks if we can just eliminate a few billion excess population, then uh, we can reverse global warming and we, the top 1%, can live forever and enjoy whatever pleasure we want and have organ replacement, disease reversal, and the whole planet will be ours. So that's, See, I just that's went to COVID-19 when you were talking about that. Listen, I would oh, be yeah. one of the, the, the mantis would get me first. They wouldn't even let me live <laughs> three, three minutes. I'd be gone. <laughs> I've got one of those brains. You, well, I've, I've told you this. You know, my I fight with my nav system. She's not the boss of me. I would not do well in this utopian type of thing. I'd be gone. Seriously, I would be gone. This has been a fascinating conversation. So before I let you go, we've got about a minute left. Do you have anything yes, else that you want to share with the audience before I let you go? And then, where can people? Ninety seconds. Where can people find you? Yes. Um, the the book, uh, The Cloud, by Robert Rivenbark, that's R-I-V as in Victor, E-N as in Nancy, uh, B as in boy, A-R-K, Robert Rivenbark. The book, uh, the novel is called The Cloud. It is available on Amazon. And you can also learn more about it and read sample chapters uh, before you buy it at www.thecloudnovel.com. Listen, thank you so much, Robert, and thank you for sending me the book. I don't sleep well, and I'm going to blame this right on you. I don't sleep much anyway. (laughs) Since I I started reading this book last weekend, I have had some, seriously, some sleepless nights. I was texting my my sister at 3 o'clock this morning. She's in California in the Bay Area. I'm in southwest Louisiana. It's three for me, one for her. She said, why are you awake? I said, ooh. I started telling her about this book. And then I 
finally came to my senses and I said, why are you awake? You don't even have this excuse. What's going on with you? I read that book and I just went, oh, geez, but like I said, you know, I went back to 1984 and the Truman Show and, you know, what's going on with Meta, Facebook, you know, all this stuff and say, oh my God, you might have actually been writing a biography and didn't even know it. So, Anyway, thank you so much for being here and whoever's listening to this, go grab that book. If you can grab it on Kindle, do that. Be sure to leave a review for it. I'm leaving my review later today. And, you know, support people like Robert who work their hearts and souls out to provide entertainment, although I don't know that this is truly entertaining. It's scary. <laughs> when I think entertaining, I'm thinking, oh, that's cute. <laughs> that's funny. It's like, this is not cute yeah. or funny. But it'll make you think, that's for sure. So, Robert, thank you. It has been wonderful speaking with you. I thank you for just a truly fascinating story. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us. Go look for us in iTunes, Amazon Prime, Audible, Spotify, anywhere you consume your business podcasts. The truth is you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So go hunt us down. Take us along on your success journey. Robert, thank you. Thank you for having me, Denise. It's been delightful. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 